is in Acts. If you have your Bibles handy, we're going to be in Acts 12, which is on page 1106. And let's just remind ourselves, Acts is a descriptive uh, journey of the first 30 years of the early church and how the gospel took root in Jerusalem and actually exploded across all of Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And Acts 12 is a little bit of a kind of a precipice, a kind of the end of kind of the work of the traditional apostles, those people who have been with Jesus. It's actually the last time we see Peter. And next week, as we get on into Acts 13, we see how Paul goes out on his first missionary Journey. It's the last time we're going to see Peter. Um, but before we go there, I want to ask you a question and on this theme of obedience. What does obedience look like for you? In, um, 19, in the 1960s, there was a, a psychologist called Stanley Milgram, and he, he was interested in obedience and what obedience was. And he started to conduct some studies. And what he did is he got 40 or so uh, men in, and he, he got them in the room, and he started to ask them to do something. He, in this experiment, he asked them, uh, there was a learner who was in another room behind a screen, and he asked the participant to ask them questions. And he, he gave the pretense that um, he was trying to discover if there, if there was a connection between physical punishment and uh, kind of learning. And every time the learner got the question wrong, he asked the participant to, to administer an electric shock. And each time they cranked up the voltage to a maximum voltage of 450 volts. And um, what um, the psychologists of the time believed, they said, that, look, no one, maybe 1% of people will be obedient to what we're asking them to do and, and administer that kind of lethal voltage. Um, what they didn't know was the learner was actually uh, a stand-in, one of Milgram's kind of stooges behind a screen. And every time they, they pressed that trigger to administer that electric volt, they faked a kind of scream, ah, I'm being vaulted. And um, they kept turning up and up this voltage. Now they believe that 1% of people would do it. It actually turns out that two-thirds of all of the people who took that experiment were winning to administer the maximum dosage of 450 volts. And what he found, amongst other things, is that people are more likely to be obedient for a number of reasons. One of them is when they believe that the person giving the command is in a position of legitimate authority, like Milgram was, wearing his lab coat, looking all very, all very authoritarian, giving a general context for his study. They wanted to obey him. Even more so, when he was in the room with the person doing the shocking, they wanted to, to do it even further. He also found that we were more likely to be obedient when the people would avoid the negative consequences of their actions. They didn't want to kind of let the experiment down, so they just kind of played it through. And also, if there was some kind of reward, was better learning going to be made possible because of this, they were more likely to be obedient. Do you know, obedience, Stanley Milgram says this, right at the end of his study, he says that obedience is as basic an element in the structure of social life as one can point to. And to some degree, this can be our understanding of obedience. For the most part, social structures, school hierarchies, family units, over a period of time, they train us to be obedient. We have a kind of an inbuilt kind of 
focus in on what it means to be obedient. And that's a really, really good thing. It means that when we go down our streets, they are, for the most part, a safe place to be because be, uh, people are obedient to the laws of the land. It means when I go into school, the children that I teach, for the most part, are, are, are obedient. It keeps us safe. It means that when we're asked to do something by our boss, even if it's the last thing we want to do, we are often willing to do it. And yet, though, when we walk past that grass on the side of the road and it says, do not walk on the grass, in us is that instant question is, why on earth not? Why, why can't I walk on the grass? I'm not going to hurt the grass. And you want to push back against our authority. We can't help it that our, our hearts are kind of wired that way. We want to push against authority. And nowhere is this power struggle more evident than in my three-year-old daughter. <laughs> boy, oh boy, does she know how to push back against authority. Now, our ultimate goal is first-time obedience, a yes daddy with a good heart. What we often get is a no daddy with a bad heart. <laughs> and we have to deal with that. However, Beth is a bit more crafty than that. Uh, she often uses daddy, I'm going to be sneaky when I've asked not to do something. Often we get delayed obedience. We say to do something, and she delays it as long as she possibly can. And then at the last moment, she'll pretend to be obedient. And that's, for, for the most part, disobedience. Or she'll be obedient with a bad attitude, with sulky face, I'm being forced into that. That is also not obedience. This morning, I want us to see that God is calling us to something bigger. He's calling us to live in radical obedience. Not an obedience which has a bad attitude. Not an obedience which says, God, I'm going to be obedient to you, but not yet. But to radical first-time obedience. Now, why is this? Because obedience recognizes God as the only legitimate authority, who is the one who is worthy of all praise and all glory. First time, obedience guarantees the spread of God's glory across the nations. First time, obedience shows the miraculous work of grace in our life that brought us from a place of sin and is continuing to make us into his image. And first time, obedience recognizes that every command that God gives is for our good. God delights in obedience. He delights in obedience. And so let's, let's read this morning's passage from Acts 12. We're going to read all 25 verses in one go. And when we uh, get to it, we're going to actually think about uh, three different lenses to view this through. So maybe you can have this on your agenda as we read. We're going to be thinking about the apostles. We're going to be thinking about their church. And we're going to be thinking about the king in our passage. So... Chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. It was about this time that the king, Herod, arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison by the church, um, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. 
the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries, stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea of what the angel was doing, uh, doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened before them by itself, and they went through. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this, had, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, and also called Mark, where many people were gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of the mo- your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, this must just be an angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had, them th- had a thorough search made for him and did not find them, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod want- went from Judea to Caesarea um, and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and now they joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blas- Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on the throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So we're going to spend some time looking at these three characters, uh, three different lenses. And first, we're going to think about the apostles, Peter and James. And, and for the most part, both of these guys had already demonstrated incredible obedience. Both had left their jobs as fishermen and left everything behind them and decided to follow Jesus and have been giving everything to him. And even when Jesus was killed on the cross, they, they gave everything to him. They waited for the Holy Spirit as Jesus commanded them to. And now as Jesus commanded them to, they were living their lives, fulfilling what God had commissioned them to, to preach the gospel and to make Jesus famous. They were, they were both radically obedient, but the story ended in two very different ways. James was 
was radically obedient. He, they, they called him the son of thunder. And you can imagine that he was, a, the zealot he was, proclaiming Jesus' name to everyone he could see. And yet the story for him ended with him being arrested and very quickly put to death. Peter chose the same obedience. He chose the same uh, desire to follow what Jesus was calling him to. Yet he is miraculously saved. And when I, when I read this passage the first time, I just wrote a big question on my, my sheet. Why was it that God chose to save Peter and not James? And it's, it was the big elephant in the room as I, I kind of wrestled with what was going on. I think what, what God's calling us to see that he's after obedience first and outcome is secondary. Romans 11 says this, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? It's a rhetorical no. No one knows the mind of God. No one can understand his sovereignty over all things. It's a question we can't really answer. We also know that when James was with Jesus in, in the Gospels, he asked for some special recognition. He says, I want to sit to the left and the right of you, Jesus. He says, I can't, I can't do that, but do you want to drink this cup with me? And he says, yes, we can. And Jesus says, you will drink this cup. To some extent, Jesus predicted that James was going to die in this way. However, I think the, the answer is a little bit simpler as well. And Steve and Ryan, when we were at the advanced conference yesterday, alluded to this in the parable which he was telling about the seeds sown. Jesus said, when troubles come. He didn't say if troubles come. He alluded to this kind of a definite yes, a yes that troubles will come. But obedience will always involve suffering. So what do, we, what do we learn from Peter and James? We learn that obedience does not define the outcome of our lives. Living in radical obedience to God will not get us a nice car. It will not guarantee us the, the best promotion. It won't get us the perfect wife or husband. It won't guarantee us a life of free from suffering and pain. In, in fact, if we were true to God's word and lived radically for him, we could probably more easily assume that we are going to suffer and we are going to be persecuted. John Piper puts it like this. He says, the suffering of Christian martyrs has a powerful spiritual effect on those who live. It puts us face to face with eternity. It shows the reality of faith. It strips away petty pursuits and trivial anxieties on our lives and fires us up with the same zeal. Often the greatest stories of fruitfulness are out of obedience, which led to persecution and suffering. Luke's belief as he's writing here is that despite the word of God not being chained down, often the people of God are chained down for it to be, for it to grow and to go to all nations. The second thing we see is that obedience gives a foundation for peace. You get the sense that Peter, uh, chained up in the cell, was at complete peace with his scenario. And let's not forget the context. He had just seen his fellow brother murdered by Herod. He'd been arrested. He knew he was going on trial. And yet, how does he sleep when he's in that cell? He sleeps easily. 
In fact, so much so that when the angel burst into that cell with a glorious light, the angel actually has to whack him on the side to wake him up. Get up, Peter! It's jailbreak time. You get the sense that he was just content with the lot that had been given to him. He was choosing obedience first. Psalm 4 verse 8 says this, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone are Lord. Make me dwell in safety. When we are radically obedient, when we say yes to God first time, we know that we can rest in peace because we've done everything we can. And thirdly, we see that obedience over outcome gives a framework for the miraculous power of God to move. And this is really interesting that Peter was obedient. He was willing to miss anything. And what happened? The people of God prayed and God miraculously moved. And if we, if we look at the Bible, it's the pattern we see over and over again. Daniel in the lion's den, he was obedient to God. He refused to, to bow to King Darius's commands. He said, I'm not doing what you are. I'm being obedient to my God. What happens? He was taken and chucked in the lion's den. And what happened after that? God miraculously moved. Or Moses going before Pharaoh with nothing in his hand, proclaiming, let my people go. And then what happened? He was obedient and God moved in miraculous power. Or the disciples with 5,000 people to feed. Jesus says, take this and go feed them. They should have just said, Jesus, you're crazy. Jesus, you're out of your mind. But they instead chose to be radically obedient. And what happened? The power of God broke in and moved. God is, is calling us to be radically obedient. An obedience that not only says yes to Jesus, but says yes, knowing that we might suffer, that we might be persecuted, but a yes which brings about a guarantee of God's peace and a framework for God's miraculous power to move. So James and uh, Peter, the apostles, had two very different outcomes. But I love the way that the church responded to what was going on. Don't forget this is an early fledgling church, maybe five to 10,000 or so people in the city here. And um, they'd just seen James murdered. Their response might be to, to, to chuck in the towel, to pack it in. But look at verse five, what it says there. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying them. And I think we need to think about what it means to be obedient in prayer this morning. Four quick things. Prayer is an outworking of obedience. Prayer recognizes that there is a higher power, that God is ultimately sovereign over all things, that he is the ultimate authority, and that when we pray, we worship him. When we pray, we adore him. We, we lift him up as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But I, I love what Jesus says when he's teaching the people to pray. He, he says, ask and seek and knock at the door. Jesus instructs the people to bring their petitions to God. He says, bring petitions before me. Ask, knock, seek. The God of all creation has asked us to come to him and pray. Secondly, that prayer is meant to be done together. There's a, there's a sense here that the, the church in Acts 12 were completely united. It doesn't say that some believers gathered to pray. It doesn't say that a few zealots gathered to pray. It said that the church was earnestly praying for them. The whole church 
gathered to pray. And we don't know how that happened. There's likely not going to be all 5,000 together. They were probably in houses and upper rooms all around the city, gathered to pray. Why? Because they knew that when they prayed, they were asking of God and God might break in. I think the application there is that when we are called to pray as a church, it's important that the whole church comes together to pray. When an email out says, let's pray about this, this is a key moment, we all should stand together and pray. When we have a prayer meeting in the evening, we should come together and pray. It makes sense to make prayer a priority. Thirdly, prayer should be faith Peter is, is rescued from prison, and when he'd come out of his kind of crazy days, he comes to his senses. He goes to the house of Mary. He knocks at the door, and he's met by a servant girl called Rhoda who demonstrates incredible faith. She immediately recognizes Peter's voice recognizes it. It's Peter. Peter is at the door. And she runs and she turns and she goes through the courtyard to the, to the people praying. And what do they say to her? They say that she is crazy. They say that she is out of her mind, that it must be an angel rather than Peter. The servant girl demonstrated incredible faith. She believed that Peter could be busted out of prison. Yet the people praying there weren't quite so faith-filled. Do you know, God is, is able to do immeasurably more than we can possibly ask or imagine. And when we pray, we should do so in faith. We should, we should pray without a pessimistic heart. Do you know, we, we attach all our Western skepticism and pessimism to when we pray. God, I, I'm going to pray for this because I'm going to try and be obedient. But actually, deep down, when I analyze what's going on, I'm, I'm not really sure that you're going to break in here, God. I'm not really sure that you're going to do anything. I think I was just thinking about the amount of times we've, we've prayed in that way for healing because we're being obedient but not, not necessarily believing that God's going to do it. And maybe this morning we need to say again, I'm going to reject the lie that God's going to do nothing and instead be obedient to faith and, and pray in faith. Uh, fourthly, prayer should not be underestimated. Peter was, uh, was captured. He was, had 16 elite Roman guards guarding him. Overnight, he'd have been chained to two of these Roman guards, and he must have thought that his likely fate was death. It happened to James. That was probably what was going to happen to him. And yet, Peter met an angel. The doors were opened. He walked out past 16 guards, and he is testament to the sovereign power of our king. Spurgeon puts it like this. He says, the power of prayer can never be overrated. They who cannot serve God by preaching need not regret if a man can but pray, he can do anything. He who knows how to overcome with God in prayer has heaven and earth at their disposal. Prayer girds human weakness and with divine strength, turns human folly into heavenly wisdom and gives to troubled mortals the peace of God. We know not what prayer can do. Let's be a church obedient to prayer. When we are called to pray, let's come and pray. Let's come full of faith, expectant that our God can do more than we can ask or imagine. And so we have 
the church and how their response was to Peter's arrest. But we, we, couldn't, we couldn't read this passage and take some time to consider the king of the time, the Herod of our story. And it's easy to get confused here and think, oh man, this Herod must be old. But actually, if you, if you read the Gospels, you actually learn that there's three or four different Herods, and they've been doing everything they can in the last 40 to 50 years to disrupt uh, the, the work of the church and of the work of Jesus' little family tree up there for us. And um, the Herod in our story is Herod Agrippa I. Um, but let's just take a look at a few of the other Herods. Herod the Great. Now, he was the Herod who was there at the birth of Jesus. What was he famous for? He was famous for ordering the execution of all the babies in the city. Wow, that's his, his granddad looking to execute all the children. Why? Because he wanted to make himself the greatest. He was worried that people would worship Jesus instead of him. Or his son, Herod Antipas. He was uh, our Herod's uncle, he was actually there as Jesus was on trial. He was the guy who um, solicited the, the murder of an innocent man because he wanted to keep the peace. And then so his nephew, Herod the Great's um, um, son, grandson, is our Herod in our story. And actually, he's got a little bit of family history about him, hasn't he? He's got a grandfather who was barbaric, child murderer. He has an uncle who, who was quite happy to, to execute innocent people. And what do we learn here in Acts 12? Well, we know that the Romans appointed him to be king. They said, we want you to rule over this area. And we know that whilst he comes from a dysfunctional family, he actually has Jewish roots. His grandmother was Jewish. Um, but we also know that though he had only been in power for a few short years, he was just like his family. He was doing everything in his power to, to stay in power. So why, was, why was James martyred? Because it pleased the Jews. He saw that it met with their approval. Why was Peter arrested? Because he wanted to increase his status. He wanted to be loved by the people. It was no surprise that he arrested Peter during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It would have been a busy place. Jews would have come to the city to enjoy the feast, to take part in the feast. It would have been busy. He was strategic. He said, James has been martyred. This is good news. People love it. And I imagine he was arresting Peter at that time because he wanted to make himself look big. He wanted to be the hero. He did everything he could to make himself the greatest. He made himself Lord, and his, his power-hungry ego trip ends in verse 22, when dressed in royal robes, the people declare, surely this is the voice of God. You see, Herod wasn't concerned with obedience, but had instead chosen idolatry. He idolized himself. He, he loved himself. He did everything he could to keep it that way. And I can imagine as the people were declaring him God, he was just lapping up the glory. Yes, more, I imagine he was saying. But the thing is, obedience and idolatry cannot exist together. They are, they are opposite ends of the scale you cannot be caught up in idolatry and be obedient to God. The two things can't exist together. We can too easily become caught up in the love of ourselves or the love of money 
or, or the love of work or position or power. And before we know it, we've made something other than God the biggest thing in our lives. And instead of being obedient, we, become, live, we live in idolatry. It's a little bit like the ring of power in Lord of the Rings, where they, they get hold of this ring of power, and what it does is it slowly starts to corrupt anyone who holds onto this ring. And at the end of the story, we see Gollum, who's completely wrecked by this corruption in his life. He's just a, a shell of a man and ends up dying because of it. And I want to, to say this this morning. It's not possible to be radically obedient and be caught up in idolatry. We have to reject idolatry. See, Herod reigned for four years before God struck him down. God put him in his place. And to be honest, he died a fairly horrific death. If you look at the order of which it's written, it doesn't say he died and then was eaten alive by worms. It says he had an infestation of worms inside him, was eaten and died. It was, a, it was a horrific way to die. And this is, this is not the normal pattern. This is not the normal way that God deals with idolatry. But it is a picture of what it does to us. It eats us away. It, it festers inside us. It, it gets hold of our hearts and, and doesn't want to let go. In fact, when we choose idolatry, we, we choose to reject Jesus. But when we, retract, when we choose Jesus, we choose obedience over idolatry. In fact... We couldn't really understand obedience without looking at Jesus. We, we don't really get a, a full understanding of what obedience is unless we unpick what obedience is and how Jesus lived in obedience. Philippians 2 verse 8 says this, And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. Jesus gave up his place in heaven he came down to us. He humbled himself as a man. And how was he obedient? He was obedient to death, even death on the cross. But not because of idolatry, but because of obedience. A short time before Jesus was taken to the cross by his captors, he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said these words. He said, going a little farther, he fell on his face on the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. No reply. Yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, what we see in these verses here is the most holistic, the most comprehensive, the most far-reaching, far-fetching kind of far demonstration of obedience that one man would be willing to give up everything he had ever known and loved, even to the point of death. Such was his anguish and his pain that he, he fell to the ground, no longer able to, to stand. We knew that blood was pouring down his face, and he said to his father, Father, take this cup from me, but not as you will. Well, not as I will, but as you will. And what is it that Jesus saw when he, he looked down? He saw the wrath of God poured out against all sin for all time, and it terrified Jesus that he was going to have to suffer that fate. Why? So that our sin, so that our 
disobedience, so that our idolatry, so that our rejection of God would no longer be a death sentence on us, but it would instead allow us to live in obedience. It would be wiped out by the lavish grace of God poured out for us on the cross. That's why Jesus took the cup that we deserved. So that we can be free. So when Jesus says in John 13, a new command I give to you, he says, love one another as I loved you. Love one another as I loved you. We see that, we see what radical obedience really is. Jesus was radical. He went to the cross. What does he call us to? He calls us to love one another with that same mindset, a mindset which is willing to give up everything for him and love each other as he loved us. He's calling us to to love the church and to be willing to give up everything for her, even your life, because he did so for you. He is calling us to be fervent in prayer, to gather together, to to gird one another, committed to his people across our conurbation of Paul and Bournemouth, across the wider nation of Glasgow and Newcastle and South Africa, but ultimately to the ends of the earth, to be obedient. And he's not looking to bend our hearts into submission. He's not looking for a bad attitude, yes, God, or a, a not now, yes, God. Because he's not just bent our hearts, he's taken our hearts, he's ripped it out and he said, you have my heart. He has performed heart surgery on us. When we say yes to Jesus, we have in us an ability to be radically obedient. A.W. Tozer says this, he says, if we cooperate with him, with, with him in loving obedience, God will manifest himself to us. And that manifestation will be the difference between a nominal Christian life and a life radiant with the light of his face. If we are obedient. Why don't we we stand and pray? Father, This is a a tricky passage with lots going on, and uh, there's some big questions we just can't answer in it. Why was James martyred and Peter survived? But we see in a picture of what obedience is. And Lord, we want to be a people who are obedient to you. Lord, we want to be a people who, who know your voice, who respond to it, who aren't, uh, saying yes with a bad attitude or a yes with a not, yet, not now, God, but are saying, God, I want to just be obedient to you. Lord, we want to be a, a church who is ready to pray because when we pray, we know that the miraculous work of God can be demonstrated for all of the people around us to see. Lord, and we, we don't want to be like Herod, caught up in idolatry. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here who perhaps have let something else become bigger than God. And idolatry has got root in their hearts and it's starting to fester. Lord, I pray that they would look to you. Look to your son, the one who, instead of dying through idolatry, died through obedience. Would look to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who 
who gave up everything so that the death penalty on our life could be wiped away and instead the lavish work of God poured out for all of mankind. Lord, I pray for us right now. Lord, I pray that we would be a church radically obedient. Lord, I pray that in our obedience, miracles happen. The miraculous work breaks out, that we would know your kingdom advancing across Paul and Bournemouth and to the ends of the earth because we are choosing to be <coughs> obedient to you first. Lord, we, we can't do it in our own strength. We can't bend our hearts to do it. We can't just be clever and strategic. We just need to be obedient to you. And so, Father, would you come and just meet us where we're at? Would your Holy Spirit be at work like it was earlier in this meeting? teaching us what it means to be radically obedient to you. We ask it in your name. Amen.